Hey y'all, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. I hope everyone has had a wonderful week so far. Today we are going to talk about Democrats' gender confusion. That is right, Democrats are apparently gender confused. Here's Joe Biden saying that if you are a man who identifies as a woman in prison, you should be placed with other women. In prison, the determination should be that your sexual identity is defined by what you say it is, not what, in fact, the prison says it is. Oh, gosh. What is he? What is he saying? I'm not I'm not totally sure. I'm not really sure that he knows what he's saying either. Earlier, also, Ben Carson said that men are trying to access homeless shelters for women and that that's dangerous. But because he said that very logical statement, he was called a uh, transphobe, of course. Okay, got it. You may also remember uh, this one from, I think it was one of the first Democratic debates from Julian Castro. Uh, I don't believe only in reproductive uh, freedom. I believe in reproductive justice. <laughs> And, you know, what that means is that just because a woman, or let's also not forget someone in the trans community, a trans female, uh, is poor, doesn't mean they shouldn't have the right to exercise that right to choose. And so I absolutely would cover the right to have an abortion. So he said trans women there, but he actually meant trans men. And if you are confused, that's totally fine. I've got you. Trans women are biological men and trans men are biological women. So trans men actually have a uterus and trans women do not. Obviously, it's not that hard. You will notice that many of the Democratic candidates have their gender pronouns in their Twitter profiles. Yes, that is true. Elizabeth Warren has she slash her in her Twitter profile, just in case you were considering calling Elizabeth Warren bro. The next time you saw her, she specified for you which gender she identifies as. Speaking of Elizabeth Warren, here she is at an NYC rally saying that women, we don't need no man. We are not here today because of famous arches or famous men. In fact, we're not here because of men at all. These are just a couple of recent examples of the dissonance that you are going to see from Democrats, that you have seen from Democrats, that we are going to see moving forward during this election. And they are going to get away with it as well coming up in 2020 because the media will have their backs as they simultaneously claim that women are unique and important and powerful and that a man can be a woman if they want to, which means logically from the leftist point of view that there is no such thing really as being a woman. And we are going to break that down. But before we get into that, I do want to tell you about a cool company called Genesis 950. So if you are like me, you have multiple pets, you might be thinking of replacing your carpet because you've got pet stains on there. But before you replace your carpets and your rugs, you have to check out and try Genesis 950. Uh, with water, Genesis 950 it breaks down the bonds of stains and odors, so they are gone for good forever. Its antibacterial component removes pet stains and odors from carpet and padding. It can be used in a carpet cleaning machine and it's also green, so it's safe for your family and your pets. I know that's a really big concern for a lot of you. If you are tired of pet cleaners that just don't work, I know all of us are, it is time to buy Genesis 950. One gallon of industrial strength Genesis 950 can make up to seven gallons of cleaner. That is a lot. A larger ratio may be required for old stains and odors. Uh, Genesis 950 is not just for pet stains. You can also clean your entire house, so bathrooms, kitchens, countertops, granite, quartz, garage floors, 
all of it, oil and grease stains, engines, wheels, all that good stuff. So before you purchase new carpet, you have to try Genesis 950. It is available on amazon.com, but if you order a gallon direct at genesis950.com, you will receive a free spray bottle and discount using Blaze, that is B-L-A-Z-E, that is genesis950.com, genesis950.com. Okay. Now that we have gotten through that, let us talk about this crazy circle that Democrats are running in trying to define a woman and fight for women's rights, fight for feminism, but also say that there's really no such thing logically or biologically as a woman. If you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we often talk about the insanity of intersectionality. Here is a technical definition of intersectionality. The interconnection, interconnected, I can't say, I can't even say it's already confusing. The interconnected nature of social categorization such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. That's amazing. It is the process of assigning oppression points. This is me now. It is the process of assigning oppression points to people based on the groups to which they belong. That is my simple definition of it. So the less white or straight or Christian or cisgendered or wealthy you are, the more oppression points you receive, which in the world of leftism affords you political and social capital. The messages you convey are seen as credible and important simply because you are a part of a traditionally marginalized group. So for example, we've given this example many times before, Jesse Smollett or Nathan Phillips with the Covington Catholic saga or the Georgia State Representative Erica Thomas who made up a story uh, that a white man hurled racial insults at her at a grocery store ended up not uh, being true according to interviews and people who actually looked into the so-called incident. All of these people, though, were immediately believed by the leftist media because they are a part of minority groups. Their stories must be automatically bought into right off the bat to perpetuate the narrative that white supremacy and bigotry are still rampant in this country and that Donald Trump is at the helm of all of it. We have also discussed why intersectionality is a wholly unbiblical worldview because God does not define people by the victimhood of their group. Group, nor does he judge people uh, or judge individuals on the basis of the sins of people who share their race or their sexual orientation. This is a worldview based on resentment, based on bitterness, based on covetousness, none of which are pleasing to the Lord. It is a worldview unconcerned with factual truth or objective morality, but is rather concerned with making moral points about the evils of the oppressor. Uh, like all unbiblical worldviews, it is unsustainable. It is constantly tripping over itself. It is constantly contradicting itself. When you measure people's worth or importance by how oppressed they are, and when you determine how oppressed someone is by how far they are from the mainstream or the majority, you're going to have a conflict because these so-called marginalized groups are going to be competing for who is actually more marginalized than the other. So in a culture where being a victim of oppression is glorified as a virtue in itself, there will be unfortunately people lined up to join the most allegedly discriminated against or misunderstood group. 
Intersectionality is part of the Marxist ideology and as such is godless. There is no God in the center or in any part of Marxism. Any attempt at creating a moral system without God is always going to be riddled with problems. Really, any system, of course, on earth is going to have its problems. But if you try to create some kind of system of right and wrong without God being at the center or the foundation of it, it's not going to work. It's going to fall very quickly. Without God, without a moral lawgiver, as C.S. Lewis calls him in mere Christianity. There is no basis for a moral law. Everything is then subjective based on the individual's interpretation of what is good and what is bad. Evolution, natural selection, survival of the fittest do not account for all that we view as right and wrong. It's just not sufficient. The materialist worldview is just not sufficient to create a moral framework. Therefore, when we remove God from morality, all we are left with is subjectivism and uh, confusion, which is what intersectionality is. That is why it fails so often. It does not hold to any standard of the absolute truth. It is based on self-identity identity, and personal feelings rather than on reality and an objective morality. This is constant confusion. Uh, one of the many points of dissonance that we see in the intersectional world is this, that we are watching between feminists and transgender people. Uh, many feminists will say that they are affirming of transgender identities, of course, and that men who claim to be women are women. But thinking feminists have a problem with this. They ask a very important question. If a biological man can claim to be a woman and by doing so be just as much a woman as a biological woman, what is a woman? How do you define a woman? Is a woman really just something that you say that you are? Are we just diminishing womanhood to that? Do we really have such a low view of womanhood and of the female body and of the female creation that being a woman doesn't actually mean anything? Are we really just concepts without any material significance or distinction? And if a woman is just this undefinable, elusive idea that only exists in people's minds, is there a basis to fight for women's rights? Is there a basis for feminism or what feminism says that it is, which is a movement for women's rights? Uh, because a transgender woman has met different obstacles than a biological woman has. They don't have the same difficulties and challenges, even just physically. And even when a man tries to live his life as a woman, there are still going to be differences between him and a biological woman. No amount of hormone therapy, no amount of reconstructive surgery will ever alter a male's, uh, a man's male chromosomes. He will always fundamentally, basically biologically, scientifically be a man. Uh, this has become a problem when it comes to things like sports, where boys who claim to be girls are competing against girls. And guess what? They're dominating. Of course they are. That should be no surprise for anyone who has even a lick of common sense. Because in general, men, boys are stronger, are bigger and faster uh, than women are. They have a better aerobic and anaerobic capacity. They have better bone density. They are in general more aggressive. Uh, this is a problem when it comes to prisons or women's shelters or bathrooms or locker rooms, places where women seek privacy and protection from men. Men are much more likely to be predatory than women are. So the Democrats, having claimed their spot, all the Democratic candidates pretty much at this point, having claimed their spot on the far left, which does not, I don't think, represent the majority of Democratic voters, having claimed this spot, they are placed in this self-made conundrum of saying that they are fighting for women's rights, but A, not being able to define what a woman is, and B, placing women at the mercy of biological men who claim to be women. 
Uh, when men can be women, can occupy women's only spaces, can compete against women, women lose. Uh, women in general will never be able to overpower a man, whether it's in a physical altercation or in an athletic arena, just in general. Uh, so considering a man, a woman, just because he says he is, makes biological women and their efforts for equal rights obsolete. By the way, uh, these are the same people who would prefer to disarm women who want to protect themselves with a the firearm. Uh, these are the same people who claim to be about scientific evidence and truth. These are the same people who claim to have a monopoly on morality and compassion. But the question is, is it really compassionate? We know it's not logical, but is it really compassionate to allow a man to share space with women in prison, for example? Is it really compassionate to allow man to dominate women in sports? This is the problem with intersectionality, one of the many problems with it. But this really typifies, I think, or symbolizes all of the problems uh, that trans women are considered uh, more oppressed than biological women. So they will be bowed down to by the left and these Democratic candidates. Being a cis woman is privileged compared to being a trans woman. So the cis woman can just shut up about fearing for her safety. We can just shut up about fearing for our daughters. Feminists can just shut up about obscuring uh, the obscuring of women's rights. And I will agree with that last one. I will agree that feminists can and probably should just shut up about the obscuring of women's rights by transgenderism because feminists got us here. Feminists got us to this place. Uh, their whole movement is, at least in the past half century, based on the idea that men and women are really not different that we are essentially the same. Feminists just have not, not in recent years, by any stretch of the imagination, figured out how to fight for the dignity of women, the protection of women, without arguing that women are and should be the same as men. That is why they are so passionate about abortion, for example, because if a man can physically walk away from a pregnancy, uh, then a woman should be able to as well. They have pushed equality through homogeny, is something that I've called it a lot, or equality through sameness. So rather than equality of dignity, equality of basic rights, it has been, no, we are the same. Uh, you know what happens when you claim that there are no essential differences between men and women? They become interchangeable. And when they become interchangeable, they lose their distinct meaning. This is what happens in a world without absolute truth or in a worldview not based on absolute truth. The standards are constantly shifting. It is confusing. It is chaotic. No one can keep up with them or live up to them. And then I think as a Christian of Jesus who says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I compare that to the yoke and the burdens placed on us by mainstream culture who tells us that we will never be woke enough. And I praise God for an objective, unchanging standard. Uh, people say that being a Christian is hard. I don't know. I think that it might be a lot harder to be a leftist in this day and age. This is, again, why it is so difficult, if not impossible, to be a Bible-believing Christian and a modern leftist because both are asking you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow it. Uh, but following leftism leads only to more and more confusion. Following the creator of the universe who has graciously given us the scriptures, who has graciously left us with the Holy Spirit, leads to clarity and to peace. That doesn't mean that we know everything or that we have everything figured out all the time. But when we have questions, when we have points of confusion, we know where to go. We go to the source of all knowledge and wisdom and we begin and we uh, subject our opinions to him. So Christians have the privilege, the utter privilege, the luxury to get off this crazy merry-go-round of leftism, which makes no sense 
and is constantly caving in on itself. Uh, God made us male and female in his image, equal in worth and different in roles. Uh, you can go listen to the interview that I had with Nancy Piercy last week. Yes, it was last Friday. We talk a lot about the, uh, the biblical view of the body and how it is much more honorable than the secular view of the body and why these conflicts are happening. I highly recommend you listen to that interview. I also have an episode called Biblical Marriage where I talk about why God made us male and female and how we are to complement one another. I also did a episode, an episode at the beginning of the summer called Women in the Church, where I talk about the distinct roles that God has for, for men and women according to his word. And so those are all good resources uh, for you to go back on. This is not a crazy train that we need to be on as Christians. It's one that we can hop off, we can look to God's word, and we can see clarity, and that we can watch people who claim to be moral arbiters fall all over themselves constantly trying to keep up with the new standard of wokeness, which makes no logical or biological sense whatsoever. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. That was really the main chunk of this podcast episode. I know I got through it really quickly, but I wanted to have time to answer some of the questions that you guys sent me. It doesn't have anything to do with that subject, so we're kind of switching gears. I asked on Instagram if you could send personal, political, theological questions that you have burning in your mind, and I will try my best to answer them. Um, one question that I've gotten a lot that I want to answer because I have it, maybe I could do a whole podcast episode on it, uh, is my thoughts on Christians and alcohol. So the first verse that I think about when it comes to Christians and alcohol is Ephesians 5.18. It says, uh, do not get drunk on wine, uh, which is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So what that tells me is that whatever fills you controls you. That's something that we've talked about before and that Christians should be very particular about what we consume, not just what we drink, but also what we consume as far as the music that we listen to, as far as the shows that we watch. I actually did a an episode over the summer called Whatever is Lovely that talks about uh, that passage in Philippians 4 that says Christians should be dwelling only on that which is lovely and we should be careful about the things that we watch and the things that we take in. But I think it's also true of alcohol, that if you allow alcohol to fill you, it is going to control you. And that is not what Christians are called to. We are not called to debauchery. Now, I do think that it is possible for Christians to drink responsibly. Do I think that it's totally cool for you to abstain from alcohol altogether in an effort to be um, as far away from the sin as debauchery as possible? Absolutely. I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I don't think that's legalistic in the slightest. I think that actually might be very wise. Additionally, there's another stipulation on this allowance of alcohol for Christians. If you are with someone who you know is struggling, whose maybe faith is weak, or maybe they're new to the faith and they're trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong, or maybe they struggle with alcoholism themselves, maybe they don't know how to just have one beer and be fine. Maybe whenever they go to a bar, they have a really strong temptation to get drunk, or maybe when they have one drink, they can't handle the buzz and they just want to go further. Then I do think that it is your responsibility as a loving brother or sister in Christ to not drink in front of them. I do think that that is our obligation to uh, other members of the body of Christ. That even if you are fine, completely responsible, drinking beer on your own, if you are with someone or if you're around people, you don't know their stance on it, um, but it might tempt them or it might 
in some way hurt their faith. This is like when Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols. It's a kind of a similar situation. Um, if you are around people and you don't know how they're going to take it, it might be the wise thing just to not drink. So I think context really matters and obviously how much matters depending on how it actually um, affects you. And of course, if at any point alcohol becomes an idol to where you feel like you're not fun or you're not relaxed or you're not okay, unless you are drinking alcohol or you're getting some kind of buzz from alcohol, I would say that that's a problem and that's an idol that you need to give up. So is it possible for Christians to responsibly drink alcohol? I think that it is, but there are many stipulations to consider, not just, um, well, obviously it's all obedience to God, but also in considering those around you and what is most loving to them. So I got a question about women shaving their armpits and legs. I did a question and answer on Instagram a couple weeks ago, and someone asked me what I think about women not shaving. I don't know really where the question came from. I, this is not really a subject that I tackle very often or that I've really thought about. And I kind of just made a joke of it saying that I, you know, I kind of think it's gross when women don't shave their armpits and legs, but I obviously don't think it's some kind of moral issue. If you decide not to shave, I think that's perfectly fine. I'll be your friend. I don't think you're a bad person. I don't even think that you're a gross person. That's just not a personal choice that I make. I don't think it's biblical or unbiblical or anything like that to shave. But I got some crazy responses from people who are very angry that I think that it's a little bit gross if women don't shave their armpits. Again, based on my own personal preferences. And if you want to say that I'm brainwashed by the patriarchy because I think it's better for women to shave, that's fine. I'll admit that I'm brainwashed by the patriarchy. That's okay. But someone asked me why I don't think it, why I think it's unhygienic. And I actually don't think that I said that necessarily. I think you can be a clean person, a clean woman and not shave as long as you take showers and things like that. I just don't, I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for it. Like I'm not betting my life on this stance or anything. This is not going to become like the central theme of my podcast. I just think that it's kind of gross to look at. I, I just don't, I just don't like it. But hey, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine with me. Again, I don't think that this is a moral problem, but some of you out there are like apologists for not shaving and you think that all of women's rights are based on women not shaving. I think that's, I don't know. I don't know about that. I can't get on, I can't get on board with that. Maybe send me a very convincing email. I don't know. You never know. Maybe next summer when I'm wearing tank tops, you'll be like, wow, Allie has decided to join the people who, the women who don't shave. Just kidding. That's never going to happen. So a lot of questions on the climate change, on the climate change strikes, Greta Thornburg and climate change in general. So this, I think, begs an entire episode, kind of like what I did over the summer where I dedicated, you know, an entire episode to the, you know, the Constitution and an entire episode to universal basic income and all of these issues. I think I need to dedicate an entire episode to climate change. I also need to dedicate an entire episode to the Second Amendment to really get us, give us context and what Christians should think about this. Uh, I I don't think, of course, that it's wrong at all for us to take, um, to, to take this somewhat seriously, or at least critically 
in in that, let me give a major stipulation, in that I simply think that Christians do have a responsibility to steward creation well, that we should care about what happens to our forest and our trees and our animals and our air because God has graciously given us all of these things and he has given us a responsibility as human beings, as image bearers to take care of these things in a responsible way. The question is not whether or not we should care about the environment. The question is, a, how serious is it? And B, how much freedom should be taken away from us and how much money should be taken away from us by the government uh, to solve problems that we're really not sure how we're really not sure how serious they are. And another thing I think Christians should consider is that it's just not true, according to the Bible, that the world is going to end based on climate change. We know how the, quote, end of the world is going to be. We know um, what that's going to look like when Jesus comes back. We know what the end of time, how that is all going to work out. And it's not going to be because of climate change. It's going to be because of God's providence and his will, a time that he destined long before any of us were ever born or created. Uh, so I think we need to be wary of the fear mongering on that. Personal question, how has recovering been from having a baby? Plus, how are you keeping up with everything? You know, recovery has been it's been pretty good. It hasn't been um, easy by by any means. And balancing work and being a mom is difficult. I love being a mom. I know I say that like every podcast, but I love it more than anything. I also love my job much less than I love my child. But I do like what I do and I feel privileged to be able to do what I do. Um, it's an awesome opportunity that I understand not everyone has to be able to talk about the things that they're passionate about and actually get paid to do it. It is difficult balancing those two things, a job that it is a very good opportunity and, you know, being a mom that I love more than anything else in the world. And I would give up absolutely everything if I had to for her, you know, it's, it's difficult, but I'm also very, I'm very lucky. We've got family close by and that has helped so much. Obviously I have an awesome husband. I'm not alone. Shout outs to single working parents out there. I, 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 well, I can't imagine how difficult that is, but I have profound respect for you because it is hard. Even as someone who is surrounded by so many supportive people, it can be very difficult. I also have an awesome situation where I get to work from home and I get to be with her basically all day long, which is, I, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything better than that. So it's been hard and good and wonderful and tiring and all that good stuff. She, uh, slept. She has been sleeping pretty well. She, we've been, I've been very, uh, disciplined in the, the schedule that I've given her during the day to make sure that she can sleep well at night. And that has been working so far. So I'm really excited about that, but it's great. I mean, she's wonderful and awesome. She's the cutest baby in the world. I mean, she just is. I know that I'm like kind of biased, but she's the cutest, cutest baby in the world. Another question. Have you thought about going to seminary? I, have thought about it at some point in my life, although I am not considering doing that right now. Maybe sometime in the future, there are a lot of people I know that are in seminary, that teach at seminary, that are uh, extremely wise and know more about the Bible than I do. I just don't think that's something that I'm going to step into at the moment, although I really appreciate the people that do and can share their wisdom with us. Someone said, how do you talk to Jesus with very theologically liberal family? They think I'm nutso. I would ask them a very simple question. Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him? 
And if they're theologically liberal, they will probably say no. And their answer to that question is it gives you a good indication of what they believe about the rest of the Bible. So if they don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, I would just ask them a simple question. Why then do you consider yourself a Christian? Why do you consider yourself a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father? What does being a Christian mean? Ask them if they're able to define that. I would say asking questions is the best way to get theologically liberal people to think about their worldview and whether or not it actually aligns with any kind of objective standard of truth. Someone asked tips for someone wanting to start a podcast. So... I would make sure that there is an audience for what you want to talk about and that there is an audience for your podcast before you start the podcast. It is very hard, if not impossible, for a random podcast just to start and to pick up any sort of traction. Now, if you just want to start a podcast for your family and friends to listen to and a close circle of people to listen to, I think that's perfectly cool and fine. But in order to grow a podcast, it really helps if there is, if you already have a currently standing audience and you kind of understand what you want to talk to them about and what you think that they would uh, benefit from hearing you talk about, that really helps in starting a podcast. It's really hard to start from scratch, not having any sort of audience or name recognition starting a podcast and hoping that it picks up. Of course, that happens uh, sometimes by, I would say, great luck for lack, for lack of a better word. Of course, we know nothing is just coincidental. But uh, yes, there are some podcasts that start that way, but it's very difficult to start that way. So I think it's important to build a platform either on a, on a blog or if you are any sort of writer, contribute articles to other websites, try to get some clout, some credibility uh, before actually starting a podcast or else you might just be speaking into a void. If you were, I feel like I've been asked this before. If you were asked to be the conservative panelist on The View, would you do it? Please say yes. I think I've been asked this, but yeah, I mean, of course I would. Although I think Megan McCain does an awesome job and I love watching her her clips that I see circulating. She just does a really good job, I think, of defending conservatism on The View. What do you order at Chick-fil-A? Well, it really depends on the mood, but I typically order a grilled chicken sandwich. If I'm really feeling it, I'll get fries, though post-pregnancy I've been trying not to get fries, but I'll get a grilled chicken sandwich. Not that that's that healthy, but it's a little healthier than the fried chicken sandwich. I mean, if I really want to go all in and I am just like, I don't even care about calories or my organs at all, then I will get uh, a chicken strip meal with a large fry and a lemonade or a Sprite. I used to get Coke Zero, but I've stopped drinking diet sodas for whatever reason. Obviously, it's not, I guess, for health reasons since I'm still eating Chick-fil-A chicken fingers, but maybe it's helping something. What are your thoughts on modesty in fashion and in actions and attitude? Well, obviously, Christians are called to dress modestly, and this looks different. Some standards look different for different people, just depending on your body type. Something that might be modest for one person isn't modest for another person. Um, I, I think some of them are pretty obvious, the parts of the of the body that you show, but there are questions like, is it okay to wear tight jeans? Is it okay to wear shorts at all? Is it okay to wear, um, you know, a tank top and show your shoulders? It is, is it okay to uh, wear a tight t-shirt? I mean, there are all different kinds of questions that the Bible doesn't specifically say you shall not wear a tank top, but I think it is the spirit of purity and the desire to 
um, and the desire to be pure and the desire to dress as modestly as you possibly, as you possibly know how to dress, uh, using scripture as our guide and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I think that is the spirit behind it. Um, the Bible says that our bodies are not our own, that they were bought with a price that they are indwelling or in them is dwelling the Holy Spirit. So we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we should honor God with our bodies. That also means in how we dress. There's a lot of Christians, especially, I mean, I guess definitely only, maybe exclusively Christian women who have, you know, kind of forgotten about that. I certainly, I mean, I haven't been perfect in that. I think back to to college and probably different stages of my life where I certainly could have been more modest because either I just didn't care, didn't know, or didn't think about it, or it was the popular thing to do. I mean, most Christian women that I know have been imperfect in this arena. That's certainly not an excuse. That's not to say it's no big deal, but I'm just saying that I'm not speaking from this like perfect or self-righteous place, but I am saying that scripture talks about the importance of honoring God with our bodies and that it is important how we dress and that we are as modest as we possibly, possibly can be. Um, you said also in attitude and actions. Now we talk about so much on this podcast, the glorification of self-love, what I call trendy narcissism, modesty these days, isn't really something that is seen as a virtue. It's kind of cool to say, yeah, I know I'm awesome. I know I'm great. I deserve this. I know I'm beautiful. I know I'm perfect the way I am. I know I'm enough. That is seen as empowering. That used to be seen as tacky. That used to be seen as something that you didn't want to do. You wanted to be kind of muted or uh, understated about the things that you're good at. That doesn't mean that you're self-deprecating, but that you just kind of, you know, worked hard, accepted the talents that you have, but you didn't go around talking about how perfect and wonderful you are. But now apparently self-love is uh, self-obsession. And apparently it is powerful to talk about all of the ways that you know that you're perfect. I think it's very odd. And you don't have to hate yourself to not be obsessed with self-love. As Christians, we know that it's self, it's not self-love that's going to satisfy us, but it's God's love. It's not further introspection. It's not constantly thinking about either our flaws or the things that we like about ourselves that is going to help us, but it is a focus on God, how God sees us, how we should view God, and how we are meant to be vessels uh, that glorify God. We are meant to be ambassadors of Christ. That means we are not constantly focusing on ourselves. We are looking outward and upward. That is what we are called to do. As I've said so many times, God is radically unconcerned with self-love in the Bible. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is not a directive to love yourself. It is a given that we are naturally born loving ourselves. We will avoid pain. We will look for sustenance um, at all costs. Even people who tragically commit suicide are looking to escape pain. And I will talk a lot more about that. I actually cover that in my book that's coming out next year that is basically something that my book uh, centers on. So that is all that I have time for today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I will see you guys back here on Friday when we talk about vaccines. This is part two of the vaccine conversation. Dr. Paul Offit. it's going to be an incredibly, I think, insightful conversation that whether you agree with it or not, you will gain something from. So I will see you guys then.